This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised. Diversion Podcasts. As a metalhead in the 1980s, I was already a fan of Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Dio, and Iron Maiden when I began my quest for the fastest, heaviest, and most evil-sounding music ever recorded. Friends led me to Metallica's Kill 'Em All, and I loved it. Soon after, I picked up a copy of the sci-fi comic book magazine Heavy Metal, which at the time reviewed new metal albums. One critiqued Slayer's 1983 album Show No Mercy in just eight words. We'll make hardcore punks reach for the Geritol. Perfect. I was sold. Slayer were fast and evil. I wanted more. A friend of mine, Sean Crow, who wasn't into much of anything heavier than Led Zeppelin and Yes, did some reconnaissance for me. After talking to some local Heshers, He told me about a British band from Newcastle called Venom that was supposedly the real deal, pure evil. The next weekend, I went with Sean to a mom-and-pop store in Aspen Hill, Maryland called Joe's Record Paradise. All of their import metal albums were in one section, and after combing through the racks, I came across Venom's 1982 album, Black Metal. It wasn't too busy, So Joe, the store owner, let me give the record a listen so I could decide if I wanted to buy it. As he replaced a different record from the store's turntable with Venom's black metal, I checked out the album sleeve. The front depicted a horned, bearded devil with a pentagram on his forehead. The band's logo was cursive but angular and typically metal. But it was the back cover that really caught my attention. Below the song list, which included To Hell and Back, Leave Me in Hell, Don't Burn the Witch, and Countess Bathory, were the words, We drink the vomit of the priests, make love to the dying whore. We suck the blood of the beast, and hold the key to death's door. As I marveled at this wicked verse, the phonograph needle dropped on the title track. There was a torrent of dissonance that sounded like a chainsaw digging into metal cathedral doors. A primal lo-fi guitar riff rose from the chaos, and the band burst through with a melange of raspy vocals, double bass drums, and swarming, barely-in-tune guitars, along with a rumbling rhythm. I was transfixed. And somewhat repulsed. This wasn't like any metal I'd heard. It wasn't crisp, it wasn't tight. And while I wasn't at all religious, the absolute celebration of Satan was a little unsettling. I thanked the record store owner and let the lure of venom slip out of my grasp, but not for long. 30 minutes later, while eating pizza bagels and drinking giant cups of Coke with no ice, I couldn't get the record out of my head. We drink the vomit of the priests. We drink the vomit of the priests. Fuck, I've got to have this. With less than 10 minutes until closing time, we returned to Joe's and I shivered with triumph as I plunked down a $10 bill and bought Black Metal, the album that launched both a personal and musical revolution. 
Whether or not Venom vocalist and bassist Kronos, guitarist Mantis, and drummer Abaddon were seriously devil worshippers didn't matter to me. I was captivated by their shocking lyrics and music, and I knew I had discovered a tool of rebellion more powerful than Excalibur. At the same time, Venom didn't turn me into a degenerate devil worshipper. I cherished their records the same way I loved my Clive Barker collection. The music was yet another source of angst-ridden creative expression, a personal protest to the status quo that not all of us were moved to tears by vacuous, predictable drivel or believed in the empty promises of the American dream. And we were about as dangerous to the mainstream society as Star Trek fans. Exodus and Slayer guitarist Gary Holt says he's equally annoyed and amused when people try to draw connections between dark music and devil worshipping. He's also bemused when arrogant Bible thumpers assume that those interested in unconventional forms of art are ignorant and uneducated. The paranoia and gullibility of all these people who are like, you know, even my own mother knew I was still a, a nice young boy, you know, we're just trying to sing about scary shit, you know? And, you know, they don't realize that um, there's a lot of us are quite intelligent, you know? We're not stupid. We're well-read, you know? Uh, you know, a lot of metal, heavy metal musicians are really well-read individuals, you know, spend a lot of time reading books and absorbing this stuff. Maybe a lot of those books were Lovecraft and stuff, but, you know, we were reading, reading a lot, you know? Just yeah. not reading the Jane Austen. <laughs> Right. Well, I do love Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Backstage, a diversion podcast in association with iHeartRadio. With this program, we'll go behind the scenes of metal music, into the exclusive after-show parties, and onto the tour bus to deliver the stories behind the stories. I'm your host, author and journalist John Wiederhorn, and in part two of our episode about the devil and metal, we'll examine Venom, the ever-eloquent King Diamond, and other thrash bands that up the ante on satanic lyrics and sound. Then we'll follow the historical arc of artists that, as metal bands do, became increasingly more extreme musically and lyrically. Suddenly, musicians weren't just shouting at the devil or play-acting. They were actually following the words of Anton Zandor LaVey, Alistair Crowley and the Satanic Temple, and studying the ancient teachings of Sumerian and Mesopotamian demonology. Finally, as the death metal seas parted for the black metal hordes, young Satanists in Norway formed ultra-heavy bands that only matched their extreme music with their outrageous acts, burning churches and committing murder. One of the greatest influences for Megadeth, Slayer, and many others from the thrash scene was the aforementioned three-piece from Nottingham, England, named Venom, which totally upped the ante on devilish imagery in metal. I already mentioned Venom's vomit-drinking priests and satanic imagery. Check out the other lyrics from Venom's Possessed. I am possessed by all that is evil. The death of your god I demand. I spit at the virgin you worship and sit at my lord Satan's left hand. Sounds like these guys are real devil worshippers, 
praising the path to the abyss, right? Wrong. Venom were lyrically graphic, but they used Satanism sheerly for shock value, getting their ideas from horror movies and occult books. Here's vocalist and bassist Cronus. Venom were a product of all the things that I wasn't hearing in other bands. When I would listen to a Sabbath track and, you know, Ozzy was going on about, you know, the fucking elves or the fucking witches and this, that, and, that, and then all of a sudden they would get to the point and he would say, oh, God help me. And I would say, oh, what the fuck, you know what I mean? Like, no, you're supposed to be the evil bastard, you know? So I thought, well, I'll put that in my fucking songs then, you know, I'll be the fucking evil bastard. And it was all the things that weren't happening in other bands. Like, you know, they would come to the lead break section and then you would hear some pretty little lead break and I wanted to hear dive bombs and fucking smashing the guitar into the amplifier and, you know, all that sort of stuff. For Venom, being the evil bastards didn't involve human sacrifice, but it sure meant pushing the boundaries of excess. There was plenty of drinking and drugging, and on stage the band were way into high-caliber explosives, even if it endangered themselves and their fans. For their first show in the U.S. with Metallica, the promoter refused to hunt down the equipment for a mind-shattering pyro display. So Venom took matters into their own hands, importing a large quantity of explosives to New Jersey before the show. We had put the pyrotechnics in the back of all the speaker cabinets, and we'd sent the gear over by ship, and the ship took nearly three months to get to America. We had to send the equipment three months before those shows. And then when the big truck arrived at Johnny Z's house and we took all the equipment out and we all got the screwdrivers out and we started taking the back off all the cabinets. What are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Then we started pulling out all this titanium and blasting powder and all these fuses. And all. It was like, wow, if that shit had went up on that boat, on that cargo vessel, it would have sunk in the middle of the Atlantic and nobody would have ever known why. <laughs> <laughs> Because there was enough fucking explosive on that ship to fucking totally, totally bring the ship down, without a doubt. And that's what we used uh, at the Staten Island show. And we blew holes in the stage so big that the venue was actually closed down after the second Venom show. <laughs> and even today, that venue's closed. It got, it's never been used for a concert since. Enthuses Gary Holt. Yeah, and our first European tour ever was supporting Venom on the Black Metal Tour in Europe and that was rad, just totally awesome, you know, just total fanboys, you know, and they're just the greatest guys, you know, and you hang out with them and, you know, they're just normal dudes, they weren't like, you know, walking around like with this glassy-eyed stare looking for some animal to kill, you know, show showbiz, you know, uh-huh. fucking awesome, one of my greatest influences, Venom, always will be. Contrary to all those Bible thumpers in the 80s, who thought everyone from ACDC to ZZ Top played the devil's music, there were actually very few bands for most of the decade, including Venom, Slayer, and Dark Angel, that practiced what they preached. Still, one of the metal icons of the era, King Diamond, who had an upside-down cross microphone holder made of bones, wore face paint resembling Gene Simmons from Kiss, and took the stage in a black gown, was a tried-and-true Satanist. His band at the time, Merciful Fate, played a blend of melodic metal and speed metal, and he sang in a ghoulish voice that ranged from a scary moan to an eardrum-shattering shriek. Evil though he may have been, the Danish king was polite and intelligent, 
and he had clear logical responses to questions about his blasphemous music. This is from a conversation I had with the King in 2007. At a time when bands like Venom and Slayer were toying with mysticism and, and satanic imagery and coming out and saying it was all inspired by horror films and they really had no beliefs whatsoever, uh, with Merciful Fate, you really came out with some bold, clearly pro, you know, and maybe it was all fantasy too, but it was very satanic stuff. Absolutely. It's, it, a lot of the statements, you know, I can tell you uh, the probably not every single song, but uh, today I stand by every single of those songs and the, the purpose that they had when they were written, you know, a lot of the times, like, like, uh, Ishan just also said, you know, that you, uh, you want people to think, you want people to try and make up their own minds about things that maybe bothers you and probably bothers a lot of other people. A song like, uh, Nonsense No Fun, for instance, you know, I mean, uh, uh, this cult raping, pretty much raping a nun, you know, and, and crucifying her, you know, it's like, uh, well, wh where, where is the good in that, you know? Well, you know, I'm not saying there's any good in it, but I'm just saying that, isn't it funny that it, it's a drawing of an album with music on? And at that time, a lot of people freaked out over it, you know? And then you, you, you ask those people who, who mainly freak out, what is so bad about it? It's a drawing. At that time, it was uh, a lot of uh, questions for Christianity at that time, you know, from my opinion. I had a lot of questions, you know, that, uh, and I, I saw a lot of, of uh, and I'm not saying that's the way everybody is, because I, like I've constantly said, I respect other people when they respect people who believe in other things too, you know. Uh, respect human beings for being human beings, not for what they believe in. But that's unfortunately not always the case. Many extreme metal fans, including me, rushed out to buy that aforementioned 1982 EP, Nuns Have No Fun, despite, or maybe because of the shitty black and white drawing of the topless nun on the cover. One story King Diamond loves to tell involves a TV talk show he was invited to in Denmark to defend himself, his satanic music, and the unsettling Nuns Have No Fun artwork. I was on uh, the air with a, a priest on live television having this discussion exactly with this cover. He was there to confront me. It was Saturday night TV in Denmark. But this priest had been after Mercy's ass since we started. He wanted us banned from, from the radio and all this stuff. He took like a personal vendetta against us, you know. Uh, and, and I was so fed up with this guy. And uh, when getting invited to go on a TV show and debate him, I said, oh, thank you. God, almost, you know, and uh, went there and started, and, and he just slaughtered, uh, not slaughtered, but tried to to slaughter everything that, that was that, that cover, and this is that, how can that be good for youth, and you know, all these things and accusations, and, and first thing I said to him was, you know what, I really like your tie, I think you are very nicely dressed for this occasion, I will compliment you on the way you're dressed. And he got totally silent, and then he said, of course, uh, well, thank you, not knowing what the hell. Oops, pride. Oh, isn't that one of your sins? <laughs> Why are you dressed up for this? Shouldn't you just be like, come in as, as you are normally? Why are you dressed up for this? To look good? I thought that was some of the things that you were not into. That, you know, forget that. Let's talk about, should we talk a little about the Inquisition? Wouldn't that be a nice subject to talk about now that we talk about that cover? Because those are the things that your face did for real. They didn't just sit and draw a little cover. 
No, they did it for real to, to how many people? Oh my God, I can't get He left the studio, you know. He, he never interfered with us again. Most recently, King Diamond has dialed down his endorsements of Satan, claiming he doesn't believe in either God or the devil. But the king is still strongly spiritual and frequently taps into paranormal energies. Towards the end of the 80s, metal got even more extreme when death metal, which was faster and more aggressive than thrash, bubbled through the Jurassic bedrock of Tampa, Florida. Inspired by the aggression of Slayer and the blinding speed of Possessed, death metal didn't only ramp up the sound of the music, which was delivered with largely indecipherable growls, grunts, and screams, but also the lyrics, which mostly dealt with dying, killing, and decomposing. And a handful of death metal bands tapped into the Satanism of Slayer and Venom, but for real. The two best-known Florida death metal Satanists were Morbid Angel and Deicide. Like King Diamond, both have downplayed their actual allegiance to Lucifer in recent years. But there was a time in the late 80s when Morbid Angel practiced occult rituals to protest the conventional constraints of Christianity and bloodletting ceremonies to prepare for their shows. It was just a, a period of time, a tearing down period of time, basically the Satanism and stuff like that, because that's really, for, for me, the only thing that it is, Satanism and what it would be useful for, is to break down the dilapidated paradigms that were conditioned with many of us being raised in, like, now America with the Christian stuff and, you know, a lot of the... Uh, rules and belief systems that draw from such principles you find in Christianity. Recalls atheist frontman Kelly Schaefer, who was backstage with Morbid Angel during one of their strange bloodlettings. I remember walking backstage and just seeing like guys from Morbid Angel sitting around a chalice, cutting themselves and bleeding into the chalice. I thought, that's fucking crazy. You know, we just, I don't know, we played crazy music, but we didn't, you know, we didn't roll like that. So for us, that was kind of odd, you know, like, what the hell are these guys doing? Adam Nurgle Darsky, the frontman for Polish death metal band Behemoth, grew up with a confining Christian upbringing and credits Morbid Angel's 1989 album Altars of Madness as one that had a major impact on his musical and philosophical development. Today, Behemoth is one of the most well-known Polish metal bands, having played on Ozfest and on bills with Slayer and Lamb of God. Back in 2007, when they weren't quite as popular, Behemoth was opening for Cannibal Corpse, and during a backstage interview, Nurgle told me about how paganism and Satanism opened up his world. Satan stands for freedom, stands for liberation. I couldn't agree with that more, you know what I mean? I deal with the universe on different levels. One of the levels is more, the, the, the most earthly one, the, you know, the carnal one, is Satanic. Because Satanism is about, you know, being carnal. And, uh, yeah, the head of mistake. So it's one of the levels. It's, it's, it's like a strong weapon, you know, and it's very basic and primal feeling, you know. So I can't say I'm not Satanist because there's so much Satanic uh, attitude in my life. I can understand why most of the Judeo-Christian world finds satanic metal objectionable and blasphemous. But if you listen to Nurgle from Behemoth, 
and even Trey from Morbid Angel, you'll see that theological Satanists might hurt themselves in rituals, but none of them endorse the stuff that Geraldo once warned us about. Animal and human sacrifices, child abduction, drinking babies' blood, all the things that cults like QAnon think Democrats and liberal celebrities are practicing in pizza parlor basements. Alistair Crowley once wrote, Do what thou wilt shalt be the whole of the law. But even satanic metal bands realize that, in a structured society, there are consequences for illegal actions. And so, outside of the privacy of whatever they do in their own covens, they usually abide by the law. Former Asheron frontman Vincent Crowley, who recently started the doomed death band Vincent Crowley, was appointed by Anton LaVey in the 90s to be a magister in the Church of Satan. The promotion from member to magister was made in appreciation of Crowley's efforts to spread the gospel of the church. Even though he wasn't a metal fan per se, he appreciated what we were doing and, and considered it real satanic music. And he actually mentioned us in his uh, one of his last books, uh, Satan Speaks. What did it mean to you to be a, uh, an active uh, member in the Church of Satan? Well, I, I think the people get the wrong interpretation of the Church of Satan. They think, you know, it's some kind of, you know, religious group that gets together for rituals all the time and, you know, do stuff like that. Where in reality, the Church of Satan was basically a think tank of like-minded people that kind of worked with each other and kind of shared what they were doing in promotion of, of the whole philosophy. So it wasn't, you know, even though there were groups within it that actually did do, you know, ceremonies or rituals and stuff, but that was all up to the individual if they wanted to do it. It wasn't something you were required to do. Death Metal upped the ante on Thrash and introduced some musicians that embraced Satanism. Black Metal, which swept through Norway in the early 90s, was a different beast altogether. In an effort to be more extreme than Morbid Angel and Deicide, black metal bands like Mayhem, Dark Throne, and Emperor found new ways to make satanic music vocally and musically darker by injecting faster playing known as tremolo guitar, more sepulchral vocals, and sometimes mournful keyboards into a blend of icy, angry sound and lo-fi production. But what the Norwegian black metal scene is best known for is the criminal acts that landed members of some of its biggest bands behind bars. Some were jailed for burning down beautiful ancient churches. Others engaged in horrific violence. Members of Emperor and Swedish band Dissection killed gay men in hate crimes. Dissection frontman John Notvite later committed suicide, as did other members of the black metal community. The most sensationalized event took place in 1993, when Varg Vikernes, also known as Count Grishna, a neo-Nazi and Satanist who formed the band Burzum, killed Oysten Arseth, also known as Euronymous, the original founder for the band Mayhem and the owner of the record store Hell. Yet for Mayhem bassist Necrobutcher, the most disturbing incident took place in 1991, when the band's vocalist, Per Olin, who went by the name Dead, killed himself with a shotgun, and Euronymous treated the event like an opportunity for publicity. 
we hooked up with this guy from a band called Morbid in Sweden. He called himself Dead, Perolin. And when he committed suicide, Öystein took some photos of his dead body and it was actually calling me and said that Dead had done something cool. And I said, what? What's up? Now he blew his brains out. And I said, what the fuck, you know? And then he told me about the pictures. And I told him that you burned those pictures before you even called me again, you know? This is the wrong way to react. You're sick in your head, you know? The grisly photo depicts Dead's head split open and brain matter lying next to the corpse, along with the shotgun he used to kill himself. Euronymous sent copies of the shot around the industry, and in 1995, it was used for the cover of the bootleg live album, The Dawn of the Black Hearts. I was like completely knocked out by grief. I was the only one from the band. I went to Sweden to his funeral. Mm. You know, I couldn't think straight. And then Euronymous used the opportunity to go behind my back. So when, he, when Euronymous was killed later on, I just I woke up you know, from my grief of my dead singer. And I got angry, you know, I was thinking, fuck, I got to fix this, do it right, you know, and get this band back on track again. Some members of the Norwegian black metal scene went to jail for arson, assault, and or murder. But most of the bands from the region kept making albums. And in the years following the violent crimes, black metal thrived yielding genre classics from Mayhem, Dark Throne, Emperor, and others. Vincent Crowley condones neither the murders nor the church burning, but he understands how the black metal scene got caught up in a deadly game of one-upsmanship. You got the earlier bands like, you know, Venom talking about it, and you have bands, you know, later on that actually start practicing it and, and being very open-minded about it. And then you had bands that are like, well, fuck that, we're going to go even further and do out-of-control stuff that you're not going to believe we're doing, you know, and I, I just think it was just like kind of a domino effect. It was just building up and building up, so I wasn't shocked at all. When I actually stepped back years later and kind of like listened to the music, and I enjoyed it, you know, not that I agree with it, because like you said, you know, to me, you got a beautiful piece of architecture, why destroy it? If anything, you know, bankrupt them and take it over <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's killing people is not going to do anything for you except for put you in jail so i don't know how that is going to benefit anybody but i could i could see that you know they come from a culture that christianity dominated and you know took away you know the, the whole viking you know culture was pretty much pushed aside for christianity so I could see them being angry and stuff. I just think they took it the wrong way to just react to it. If you think you're going to change the world doing criminal actions, it's not going to happen. You're just going to give the other side ammo to come against you. <laughs> I'm John Wiederhorn host of Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Backstaged Podcast to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to 
backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. As the millennium dawned, Devil Metal continued to draw new fans contemptuous of organized religion and searching for something artistically extreme. And the press still thrills at the controversy. Sweden's Watain gained notoriety by making killer music, but also by dumping buckets of real pig's blood over the crowd and setting up an onstage altar draped with animal carcasses that exude the stench of death. The band's antics even earned a story on TMZ. And just last year, Iranian death metal band Arsemis were referenced across the metal community after they were arrested and charged for being, quote, in a satanic metal band and being against the Islamic government, end quote. They face up to 15 years in jail and are currently out on bail awaiting trial. There is no question that the devil has always existed in metal, at least as an allegorical figure. Metal is a dark, aggressive style of music that works well when accompanied with bleak, scary imagery. But so what? Metal is hardly the only art form to question organized religion or merely tell stories about good and evil. Historically, painters such as Hieronymus Bosch, Raphael, and Paul Klee have depicted the horrors of hell, and writers like Dante Alighieri, John Milton, Charles Baudelaire, and even Mark Twain have written about the Prince of Darkness. Yet while the devil has existed in metal since 1970, it can be argued that metal is not the devil's music. Listening to even the ugliest black metal won't force you to join a satanic cult, sacrifice animals, kidnap children, kill anyone, or even burn for all eternity. As Geraldo Rivero pointed out so vividly in his 1988 special about kids and the devil, there are definitely some evil people out there that happen to love music. But I'd say there are also wicked sadists that love classical music and opera. Gary Holt sums up the alleged connection between violent crime and music thusly. Frank Zappa said if music could dictate how we act, the whole world would love each other because there's five billion love songs for everyone preaching hate. And, um, you know, there's how many lunatics have killed in the name of Christ and nobody's, uh, you know, screaming from the rooftops uh, to blame the Bible for it, you know, and look at some of the horrid shit that lies in that book of lies, you know. Um, you know, there's going to be crazy people who take things literally, and, uh, you know, but same goes in all forms of entertainment. Uh, you know, are you going to blame Friday the 13th whenever somebody goes on a rampage, you know, with a, with a machete, you know? It happens. Some people are crazy. They're going to be crazy whether we're all singing about butterflies and unicorns. In other words, if you're mentally disturbed and you happen to stop taking your meds and start listening to the voices screaming in your head and you end up doing something really, really bad, don't blame all those graphic metal bands. Just say, the devil made me do it. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app. 
or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn, produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer. And our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or Bookshop.org. Diversion Podcasts.